from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning, my name is Dorothy White Williams and I'm an elder currently serving on session here at First Pres. Please join me in this morning's call to worship. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. God is here. We will acknowledge the gift of God's presence and the hope it brings. Friends, God is here, so let us stand and offer our thanks and praise. Friends, let us worship God. Good morning. Please turn in your pew Bibles to Psalm 8, which is found in the Old Testament on page 466. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals, that you care for them. Yet, you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hand. You have put all things under their feet, all the sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture lesson this morning comes to us from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And again, you can follow along in your pew Bibles in the New Testament on page 145. Continue to listen for how God may be speaking to you through God's holy word this morning. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Lord, break open this ancient word afresh to us 
in this very hour. May, by the power of your Holy Spirit, your word form us and transform us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. When you experience suffering, what do you do? When you experience suffering in your life, how do you handle it? What decisions do you make? How do you cope with what you are facing when a time of trial or hardship or a season of life is, is marked by darkness or uncertainty or maybe wandering? How do you cope? Or when you enter a season marked by the recognition that you have failed or that you are currently failing, or a season of trauma, or feeling a void when it comes to life's meaning or purpose. How do you handle it? What do you do when you suffer? When it comes to suffering, some people do what I call the inward silent turn. Legend has it that in the year 445 AD, St. Patrick came to King Angus, who had recently converted to Christianity and wanted to have this great evangelist baptize him. Now, the patron saint of Ireland was known to carry a bishop's staff with him as he traversed the countryside. He used this staff for both religious purposes during services like baptism, but he also used it to help him navigate difficult terrain. It had a sharp blade at the bottom, and, and Patrick would stick it into the ground. He would lean on it while he was uh, preaching, or he would use it as he would continue on in his journeys. Well, the time of the baptism came for the king, and Patrick inadvertently stabbed the king's foot with the end of the staff with that blade. He didn't realize it, but at the end of the baptism, he noticed blood flowing from the king's foot, and he was absolutely mortified. He begged the king to forgive him and then asked why he hadn't said anything when the accident occurred. And the king responded to St. Patrick, I didn't say anything because I thought it was part of the baptism. <laughs> Some of us, when we suffer, like the king, do it in silence. We do it alone. Others, when they face suffering, engage in self-destructive or addictive behaviors in a quest to suppress the suffering, to numb the pain. Some will act out against those they love They'll act out against those they love, uh, those they share life with, because they've allowed the pain to stunt their ability to engage in healthy relationships. Still others, when suffering comes, seek to face it head on. They name it. They call it out. They profess, they confess their vulnerability. And they turn toward communities or they turn toward individuals where they can begin to find their hope and their healing. 
You know, when you think about it, the human species has developed a myriad of coping mechanisms to deal with suffering, to deal with these seasons of life that many of us experience, isolation, suppression, and an honest engagement are just a few of the ways, a few of the options at our disposal when it comes to dealing with suffering. Now, if the Apostle Paul were in the room this morning, I wonder if he might want to add an additional word to this conversation. I wonder if the Apostle Paul was here that he, he might have something to say about how we handle suffering. Imagine this hypothetical dialogue, Brother Paul, what should we do when we face suffering? Right, when seasons of suffering come, Brother Paul, you are, you're one of the great faithful saints of the church. Can you give us some insight on how we should cope when we face seasons of suffering, moments of suffering? I imagine that he might respond in this way. Well, I'll tell you what you should do. You should boast in your suffering. You should boast in your suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Now, with all that we know, with all that we know about how the human mind and the human body responds to suffering, with all of our own histories of suffering in full view, even in this moment, Paul's words to boast in our suffering seems, to me at least, a little bit odd. It seems a little bit odd. It's odd to think that the road to hope begins in suffering. But that's the map Paul gives us. If the journey is to end in hope, then the route, he says, will begin, will find its genesis in suffering. In other words, suffering is the antecedent of hope. Now, in grammar, an antecedent is a substantive word or phrase or clause whose meaning is referred to later on in that sentence by a pronoun. But the word antecedent is also used in philosophy, in the discipline of logic. An antecedent is an event or an experience that logically precedes another event or experience. The antecedent of a great flood might be a terrible rainstorm. The antecedent of a war might be an assassination attempt. So what Paul is saying here is that suffering is the antecedent of endurance, and endurance is the antecedent of character, and character is the antecedent of hope. If you trace it back, logically, his argument is stating that suffering is the first thread in the tapestry of hope. Suffering is the first thread in the tapestry of hope. And at some level, that actually seems illogical. Hence the title of my sermon. It's counterintuitive. Nonetheless, Paul calls us to boast in our suffering. Now, the word for boast in this text from the Greek has... The connotation, as we would understand it today, to be proud of, to glory in, to exalt, to show off something. 
Paul has a habit of using this word in his writings and using this word in his correspondence with the various churches in the first century. In fact, over 40 times Paul uses this particular word. And the reason he uses it is because he wants to encourage the church and the people of God, the followers of Jesus Christ, to boast in the right stuff to boast in the right material. The theme of boasting comes up time and time again in his writings. In other words, he's calling us not to boast in our accomplishments or our standing with God, but instead, but instead boast in God for who God is and for what God has done and for what God will do in the coming age. In many ways, Psalm 8 is this kind of boasting text. It, it begins with a boast in who God is. Sure, as we get into the heart of this text, human beings, we're, we're told, are minded by God. They're cared for by God, made a little lower than God, crowned with glory and honor by God, and put in charge of stewarding the earth by God. But the writer begins and ends this psalm by boasting in God by boasting about who God is, O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name, not my name, not anybody else's name, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I want to make this point crystal clear. Paul is not saying to boast about our suffering. Paul's not saying that. He's not saying boast about suffering. Paul is calling us to boast in our suffering. And what are we to be boasting about? The answer? God. We boast in God. We're boasting in the fact that God is God, even in the midst of of suffering. And in order to boast, in order to boast, one has to know this God. One has had to see this God in action. And this brings us to an interesting nuance in this particular text. The word for boast also conveys the meaning of keeping your head up high. Not in an arrogant way, but to keep your head up high so that you can gain a different perspective. To keep it up high so that you can see the world through a different lens. In fact, the root of this word boast in the Greek, the root of this word is the word neck. It's the word neck, right? That makes sense. For the neck is what gives the head the ability to be lifted up and to see what needs to be seen. So when Paul is asking us to boast about God in our suffering, what he is asking for us to do in some way is to take on a particular perspective. But, but that can be hard, right? In the midst of suffering, I had a very minor, insignificant procedure this past week. You may be able to see a little bit of the stitches on my neck. 
I was trying to practice to see how high I could lift my head up in this sermon. I can't lift it very far without the stitches tugging. And life is like that. When suffering comes, it's hard to keep our heads up and gain a little bit of perspective. Peter Pang was only eight weeks old when he died. He was the firstborn of a father and mother called Uk Pang and Biak Ta, barely out of their teenage years. They had married and then fled their native Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. They fled to escape religious and political persecution, and they entered the United States as refugees. In the church I was serving at the time, about 80 men, women, and children joined this church from the Chin Burmese community. And after facing the kind of suffering they experienced in their homeland, they were now facing a suffering that only those who have had to bury a child truly know. As the day of the memorial service came, I met the young couple about an hour before, and I found them as I had expected to find them. They were, they were slouched over. Their bodies were slumped. Their faces were red. Tears continued to pour down their cheeks. Ukpeng, the, the father of Peter, could not raise his head to look at me. He just couldn't do it. From that moment to the moment we walked into the sanctuary, he did not look up. And as the service was about to start, I noticed that the spiritual fathers and mothers, the spiritual brothers and sisters begin to to gather around this so very young couple. They put their hands on their shoulders. They, they began to pray for them. I could see them praying for them, gently caressing their backs. When all of a sudden, a man directly behind Uk Pang, even as his head hung low, gently placed his, his hands on the side of his face and and gently and softly lifted his head up to the point where the 50-foot cross that hangs in that chancel became his focal point, became his sight line. The man whispered something into Peng's ear, I'll never know what it was, and throughout the rest of the service, he just stared at the cross. When I think of Romans 5, I think of Ukpeng. And I think of Biakta. And I think of baby Peter. I think of a community called to help hold up our heads so we might gain the proper perspective even when we can't do it on our own. As Paul is speaking to the church in Rome, he's talking about practicing a particular habit, the habit of boasting in God to gain perspective, to gain a particular focus. For the Christian, when Jesus Christ captures our gaze, when he is the object of our vision, hope is born. 
Hope is realized. And friends, I believe this gaze, this perspective, this boasting about who God is, even in the midst of suffering, actually is a vision, is a stare that takes us in three directions. First, that stare, that vision is retrospective. It looks back. It looks back to see what has taken place 2,000 years ago in the event of Jesus Christ. And in that event, we recognize that God has conquered death and that suffering will not and does not have the final word. Because God raised Jesus from the dead. What does that mean for us? Even the suffering, even the suffering that will take us to the grave will be conquered by God. We're no longer afraid or oppressed by our suffering when we see the redemption of Christ's suffering and own that redemption for our own lives too. Paul puts it this way in Romans 6. If we share in a death like his, we will certainly share in a resurrection like his. To boast about God in our suffering means to take a retrospective gaze at what God has done in the event of Jesus Christ and lives and lives in the knowledge that suffering can no longer oppress us or cause us to fear because God has redeemed Christ's suffering. Boasting in our suffering is not just about a retrospective look. It's also about a prospective look. It's not just about looking back. It's also about looking forward. I saw a video this week. Maybe you saw it. It was making its rounds on social media. It came from the Big Sky Conference Outdoor Track and Field Championships. A senior from Idaho State named Shelby Erdahl had qualified for the final heat of the 400-meter hurdle event, the championship for her conference. She had never qualified for this heat in all her years at the school. Finally, she qualified. All she had to do was finish the race, and she would earn at least one point for her team, something she has never done before. She got into the blocks, the gun went off, and she began her quest for the finish line, and just before the back stretch, Shelby's left Achilles ruptured. And she hit the track in excruciating pain. A few moments passed, the other competitors had already finished, and miraculously, Shelby came to her feet, tears gushing down the side of her face. She steadied herself, and she began to hobble around the track. She started up again. I have no idea how her body endured the pain of making her way around that track. She would come to a hurdle. She would literally pick up her left leg, put it over the hurdle, and then for a moment put all the weight on that left foot and quickly bring over the right leg and begin to hobble toward the finish line. Like every good runner will tell you, your eyes, even in the midst of, of a terrible traumatic experience like that, if you're going to finish the race, your eyes have to be focused on one thing, 
the finish line, the future, what will be when I cross that line. That produces endurance. That produces character. That produces hope when we can see the future and we move toward it. Friends, the race we run in life, you know this, is not void of suffering. And yet when our eyes are fixed on what is in front of us, looking toward the finish line and toward the future that God has for us, we can continue to move on. I love the way the book of Revelations puts it. Chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. And out of the clouds I saw the holy city, the new city of Jerusalem descending. I saw God wiping tears from people's eyes. Death will be no more. Suffering and crying and pain will be no more. For see, God has made God's home with mortals. That is our future. A future where suffering is once and for all annihilated. So we take a look back to see what God has done with the suffering of Jesus Christ. And we take a look forward to see the future that is to come where suffering and pain are barred from existence. But there is a third direction that we must look. It's a direction, a gaze that is in the present moment. Looking at the world as it is right in front of us because of what has been and because of what will be, we seek to possess what Kierkegaard called a passion for what is possible. A passion for what is possible. Because God is in the business of redeeming suffering and because suffering has no place in God's future, God's people engage suffering now in our present age. We bring comfort to those who mourn. We pray for those in despair. We visit the sick and the imprisoned. We befriend and work toward the inclusion and dignity of the marginalized, the oppressed, and the poor. We welcome the stranger. We give food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty. We clothe the naked. And we proclaim the good news of the gospel for all people, for the salvation of humankind. Friends, if we are to discover hope in our lives, and in our time, then we must learn to boast. We must learn to boast in God. We must practice the habit of, of looking up to keep our head up high and to take a retrospective look at what God has done in the event of Jesus Christ, to take a prospective look into God's future and see that suffering has no part of it we must take an active look in our present time and engage human suffering with the knowledge of what has been and what will be. God has conquered suffering through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has barred suffering from God's future in the age to come. Therefore, may we today be bearers of hope, holding our heads up high to gain the right perspective but may we also seek to hold up gently and softly, 
hold up the heads of those that cannot do it on their own. And together, may our gaze be fixed on Christ, who truly is the logical antecedent of hope. Amen. Whoa.